90s basketball was a lot of fun playing against these dudes. They absolutely brought it every night. Five, four, three, two, one. Hill puts it on the floor. And stops anybody down. He brought the whole goal down. Macombo embraces the ball and then unlikely upset. They're on their feet. A new NBA assist king, John Stockton. The crowd going crazy. To Michael, three, two, Michael, firing! What's up, everybody? My name is Brian Swain, and you are tuned in to the 90s Basketball Show. Let's take a trip through time. At guard from Eldred, New York, number 32, Tammy Reese. My guess this episode appeared in Hollywood films and on network television. Owns a nightclub that regularly hosts music and movie stars, and she played a bit of basketball too. From the University of Virginia, where she was an All-American guard that helped lead the Cavaliers to three consecutive Final Fours between 1990 and 1992, to the WNBA, where she was a first-round college draft pick by the Utah Stars in the inaugural 1997 season. Tammy Reese is now making her mark on the women's basketball program at the University of Rhode Island as head coach of the Rams, and she joins me now. Tammy, thank you for joining me. Hope you're keeping well there in your part of the world. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, I've been pretty strict with, uh, with following policies of a governor here in the beautiful state of Rhode Island and uh, been, um, you know, just living, uh, living a um, kind of dormant life around the house and doing as much outside exercise as I possibly can and spending as much time with my uh, with my dogs as I possibly can. And of course, you're just coming off your first year coaching the women's basketball team there at Rhode Island, and we'll get into that a bit later. But under these, you know, very extraordinary circumstances, have you been able to keep in touch with your team quite a bit? You know, thank God for technology. You know, we have a weekly Zoom call um, with our team and our coaching staff. And then, you know, I touch base with all our players on a weekly basis. All of our coaches do. So they're getting, uh, each player is getting three or four of us constantly hitting them every day um and it's it's really really important during this time that that we stay connected and really help our kids through this i'm sure you can't wait till that day when everyone can all get back together and for us brian that day is august 17th all all of our kids are returning to campus including our international kids oh wow okay well that's coming up very quickly then that's that you got to be getting excited about that very, very excited. I cannot wait to get back to work and get on the court. We will, of course, dive into your coaching experience, and it's quite extensive now, a bit later. But I, I want to start uh, by kind of retracing your basketball steps, Tammy. Go back to your days at the uh, University of Virginia. And what a time it was for that program and for you. Three straight Final Four appearances. And when you first arrived there, that was a team that had not made it to that level, had not made it that far yet. No, you know, obviously, a lot of people don't know this, but Gino Oriema was the assistant at Virginia. Um, and I got my first letter from Virginia. It was the first school to send me a letter, and it was from a basketball camp that all the East Coast kids went to called Kathy Rush. And I remember opening that letter from UVA, 
and putting it up on my wall. I didn't know where Virginia was, but I said, that's where I'm going to go. Um, and again, G it happened to be from, uh, obviously, Gino. And um, gradually, as years went by and I, I got older, um, Virginia was always a great program. They were on the precipice of going to Sweet 16s, but they could never break through. And, you know, I wanted to go to a school, number one, that had great academics, but I wanted to be, a, I didn't want to be another horse in a stable. I wanted to leave a legacy. Like we took that school to the first ACC championship. We went to the final four. And then of course we won in their first national championship. And Dawn Staley, who everyone pretty much knows head coach at South Carolina. Now she was my backcourt mate for four years. Uh, we discussed going to school together. I can remember the phone call. She wanted the same things I wanted. And we both wanted to bring Virginia to that level. And so that's the reason I chose Virginia. And the rest was, was history. We won our first ACC championship, the school ever won. We went to the first Final Four. We just couldn't get them a national championship. Bugs me to this day. Well, you grew up in New York. And so you mentioned that letter. Well, how old were you when you got that letter? I was in the sixth grade. My first basketball camp was Kathy Rush. Um, and uh, all the coaches back then went to camps. We didn't have all these tournaments and you had a national AAU tournament, that was it. But you went to Blue Star and you went to Kathy Rush, you went to Poconos. And that's the first time Virginia saw me was at little old Kathy Rush and it was outdoor courts, it was awesome. And uh, yep, that was my first letter from Gina. What was it about that experience or that interaction, that letter? I mean, that's unbelievable. At, at, at six or at grade six, I mean, you're still six years away from making that decision. Something must have really resonated with you. Well, I, I can, I, I remember it vividly. You know, obviously I knew who Gina was. You knew who all the coaches were. They were there. Teresa Grentz was there, Vivian Stringer, Gino. You, you saw them all on the sidelines. But, you know, getting your first letter is special. Um, and, and reading his words that I was going to be an awesome guard, the type of guard that UVA wanted. And, uh, and that resonated with me being the first is always special. And so that first letter that went up on my wall and it, it, I never forgot it. And I think it played a part in why I chose Virginia. Was it a great source of motivation for you as well? Oh, most definitely starting as the 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 letters would trickle in and the phone calls and and suddenly you knew that okay I possibly have a great shot at getting a full scholarship and and realizing my dream and so you know it just motivated me to work harder practice more um I wanted to be the top one of the top guards in the country and top 10 player in the country in my class so definitely once the recruiting letters started coming in and coaches started noticing it motivated me to like, yo, you could, you could be something special here. So let's work and, and let's get this done. Here's Reese, puts it up, off the rim, it's in! And it's a three-pointer. It's a three-pointer! And it's a three-pointer! We'll go overtime. Tied at 65. Well, you'll never see anything more dramatic or spectacular than that, will you? Wow, what a shot by Reese. 
You mentioned the trips to the three straight Final Fours and everything else that team accomplished. So, so many accolades in your time there. What was it that made that team so successful? Um, you know, I really think that our recruiting class, the two classes Debbie put together back-to-back, our class had Dawn Staley, who was player of the year, high school player of the year. Um, I was first team, so you had an All-American backcourt. And then we had three other All-American players come in with us, um, top 25 class. I think we were a top five class in the country at that time. Then the next year, we happened to sign these two identical 6'6 twins called the Bird Sisters out of California. And uh, that really put us over the edge. When you, when you sign back-to-back top five or ten classes, now you have the talent to take you to the next level. And Virginia, you know, I don't think had done that in prior years. And so that really was the staple that put us over the top was, was signing the talent back-to-back years and having enough bodies to really contest with Tennessee and Stanford, Auburn, um, Texas, La Tech, the same schools you saw every year going to the Final Fours. For yourself, when you graduated in 1992, what kind of opportunities existed for you as a player at that point? You know, back then it was only overseas. Um, So I had numerous offers to sign with agents and and go overseas. But at that time, I had decided, I started taking drama classes at Virginia. And I just decided, you know, I need a break from basketball. It's been my life for 21, 22 years I want to do something different. And I decided I was going to go to drama school in New York City and get an agent and start doing um, television, movie, commercial work, and fitness shows. And so my life took a 180, and that's what I did. I took a break for basketball for five years and um, uh, playing anyway. And I decided uh, I was going to pursue a different career, and that was acting. And at that point in time, how closely involved were you, did you remain with the game? Were you, I mean, obviously, of course, as we'll, we'll talk about here, you will get a chance to play in the WNBA a little bit later. So you must have been honing your skills all this time. Well, you know, obvi- obviously, I'm, I'm really into fitness. So I was always training. I was also a personal trainer in New York, kind of surviving. That's how I would uh, pay the bills. But I would always go back to Virginia in the summer and I went back and I worked camp that one summer after I graduated. Debbie happened to have an opening on staff the next year. So she called me up and I actually went back and coached at Virginia for, um, for two or three years as an assistant um, before I even played in the WNBA. So that was my first taste of coaching was back at UVA, my alma mater for, uh, for Debbie for, for a couple of years. And so you went back to coach your one year removed after graduation? Yes. Yes. One year removed. So you would have actually been coaching some players that were your teammates just a couple years earlier then. Yeah. It made it very, very difficult. I was still young. um, And actually a couple of my best friends were still on the team. And so that in itself, I didn't love it because I was, I was kind of an adventurer. I bucked rules. I, I, that kind of lifestyle of a coach, it just it's why I left I I just did not enjoy it I wanted to live life a little bit and do different things and so I think I chose I I went back to coach because I think it it's what my father wanted me to do he loved basketball and so it's really not what I wanted to do so 
I packed up my car and I drove right out to LA uh, when I told Debbie it, I, I wanted to stop coaching and I resumed my acting career out in LA. And then the WNBA came calling a year and a half late. It is a sellout and then some. They have had to open the upper decks to accommodate ticket demand and expecting a crowd of some 12,000 people. All of them here to witness the latest chapter in the history of women's sports, the debut of the WNBA. So what was your initial response when the WNBA, when you first heard about the WNBA, were you interested in when they started making some, uh, some forays to you that they would like you to come be part of the league? I was very interested. At that point, I really missed playing basketball. I missed the competition. I missed training. And so Val Ackerman, who founded the league, who also was a Virginia graduate, uh, she gave me a call and said, hey, Tammy, we want you to come and try for the league. Um, down in, in Florida at Walt Disney World uh, at the tryouts. And so I packed my car up again, drove back to New York, and I started training with my, um, with my uh, trainer, my high school coach. Um, and I had six months to get ready. The WNBA now, and this is its 24th season, it's, it's been around for a generation. There are people who are, you know, aspiring players now, even adults now that, that have grown up and they've always known the WNBA. It was obviously a much different environment back then. And as you mentioned, the only opportunity when you came out of college was to play, go overseas. So at this point, at that point in time, what, what was kind of the vibe like around the WNBA? And um, what did you think that the potential would be for it? Well, you know, initially, I thought it would be really, really good because the NBA owners owned the WNBA teams. And so all the ownership groups were NBA. So my team was the Utah Stars owned by Larry Miller from the Utah Jazz. So we played in the same arenas. You know, it was, it felt like big time. You know, when I, when I first walked into the forum to play where Magic Johnson played, it was a surreal feeling or walk into Madison Square Garden um, in my hometown and have thousands of people there that I went to high school with and, and all my friends and family. It was, you, you saw grown women, never, we were so grateful to have an opportunity. Women that had been playing overseas for years that no one ever saw, Cynthia Cooper, no one knew who Cynthia Cooper was. And then very quickly, she stepped in the WNBA and suddenly people were like, oh my God, she's incredible. Well, yeah, she's been playing in Italy for like 10 years. Um, so the overall vibe was, this was, it was huge, it was special. Um, and we knew it, it was going to be big, um, just from the ownership groups to the marketing campaign, um, to, to every, all the energy that people, David Stern and Val Ackerman put into it. So, and it was incredible, so much different than it is now. You see the private ownership now, Brian, they play in smaller arenas. Um, you know, some of them don't even play in, in their, their NBA arenas that where the men play. And so it's a different feel now. Now. You know, also the girls have a, a union, um, you know, they're fighting for rights, but you know, it's, it's a different level when you're not owned by the same NBA team. Um, you know, I'd be at the jazz, every one of the jazz practices watching John Stockton, Carl Malone, Jeff Hornacek. I was courtside watching the bulls in 97 to 98 when they played them in the finals. And we were a part of that um, because we were unified as the women in the men's team. And so you know, I watch it now. It's, it's really a lot different. I'm so thankful I played when I played. So you were courtside. Did, did you make a cameo appearance in the last dance? 
I didn't. I wish I did. I was looking for myself because I was had my hands on my head when Jordan pushed off Brian, Brian Russell and hit that shot. And I was up there just like everyone else going, no. So, um, but they were really special times for me. Really special. It sounds like you had a really wonderful experience in the WNBA. And now looking at it through, I guess, through the perspective of time and, and relative to, to where the league is now and your own personal experiences, how, how would you kind of sum it up? I, it was a whirlwind. It, number one, because the season's so fast that you can never catch your breath. It's like you play and then a day later, or that next day, you're playing again. Um, and it, it was like, I call it Disneyland. That's what it was like. It, it was like the first time you went to Disneyland. And it was just so much um, to take in. And it was spectacular. That's what it felt like. Every day, you felt like a little kid. You know, I'm, I'm playing in the forum. Then I meet Magic Johnson. I see Pat Riley. We go to New York. Um, we're traveling the city. It's just, it was incredible. Um, and then you're getting to play against people that were your idols growing up that you never in a million years thought you'd play against. I got to guard Cynthia Cooper. Um, I didn't play in the area of, era of Cheryl Miller. The McGee twins, I got to play against them. They played for Sacramento, the one. Cynthia Cooper. Um, you're playing against these great players that I would watch and one day wish I would get to play like them. And now I'm guarding them. It, the generations and eras that you got to match up against, it was incredible. So at this point in time in your life, you've, of course, you've grown up in New York, you've gone to school in Virginia, then you were spending some time in LA, Salt Lake City. Very different experiences culturally and, and, and just lifestyle in these different places. Did you really start to feel a part of that community there during your years with the stars? You know, I really did because I'm, a, I'm an outdoor person. I love hiking, running. I had a wakeboard boat there. Most beautiful outdoor state um, you've ever seen from the running trails to the lakes. And so I loved it there. Um, I also, in order to kind of get that ethnicity um, and cultural experience that I was missing from the East Coast, I opened up a nightclub there called the Manhattan Club. Um, I owned it for 10 years, um, and it was really catered to all the minorities in Utah because Utah was very white bread America, um, the religion, everything about it. And so I found there that there were a lot of minorities, whether it be African-American, uh, Mexican, Spanish, Polynesian. And so we kind of catered our club to that and kind of broke into the business where other um, nightclubs or, or bars really didn't want to cater to the minorities. And so we did. And, and it was a fabulous run. Um, again, some of the best times in my life where, you know, we're playing a game or we, we opened up the day with, with Carl Malone's um, foundation uh, and Byron, Brian Russell's foundation. It was our kickoff to hip hop night. And they had all the celebrities in playing in the game. And we had the after party. And it was huge. Um, we had all the, all the after parties to all the concerts, 50 Cent, Snoop Dogg, uh, the list goes on and on. And so again, um, it was just a great time in my life. Um, and being part of that community, um, 
and as a business owner, uh, it, it was a very special 10 years for me. What year did you open that up? Um, the year I took a year off from playing, um, I went and I filmed a movie called Joanna Man in North Carolina uh, for a summer. That's the year I bought the nightclub. And we were during renovations when I was um, off filming a movie and then we opened up in 2000. Um, so, it, and then I became a coach for the stars. Um, right after that, I joined the team that next summer um, and, and became an assistant coach for the stars. I find that really interesting because I remember back in the day you'd hear, you know, the joke was that there was nowhere open after six o'clock in Salt Lake City and you'd hear players from other teams complaining that when they came to town, there was no nightlife, et cetera, et cetera. So for you to open up something like this, it must have been, would it be fair to say kind of like something kind of almost groundbreaking for that community? Um, it it kind of was. Um, I mean, there's other clubs that had had. Um, kind of some hip hop nights, but those clubs or, you know, ethnic nights, but those clubs were kind of on the downswing. You know, you, you usually after four or five, six years, you got to reinvent yourself in that business um, and become fresh and hip again. And so it so happened, we renovated an old club and kind of became the it spot, um, fresh, new. And um, so that's kind of why. So when all the, the NBA teams would come in, we'd, they'd come to our club, um, the night before or after the game. Um, and so, you know, and they knew a, a WNBA player had owned it. Um, so it uh, made it for special, special times. The, the liquor laws and, and some of the laws in Utah were definitely interesting. Um, but um, again, owning that nightclub, and I owned another business in Utah, day spa and salon, really prepared me to be a coach because from an operational standpoint, all the things that a head coach has to do outside of actually coaching, budgets, um, managing people, all those business things from operation, and we call them operational stuff for a coach, that nightclub prepared me beyond measure. Owning a nightclub is 100 times harder than being a head coach from an operational standpoint. Um, you know, I had over 60 employees I had to manage on a night. I had over, you know, six, 700 people and a night I had to manage. Um, and those people were usually intoxicated, so made it very difficult. Um, and I ran, I ran our day-to-day -day operations. I was the receiving, um, you know, manager. And, and so I, I kind of ran the business. And so it really prepared me um, behind the scenes to be a head coach. So obviously you must have been a big music fan then, or are a big music fan. I was. I was a huge mu music fan. Um, I, you know, the only night we really didn't have was was uh, country night. Everything else we had, you know, throwback disco, Monday nights disco. We had underground hip hop. We had mainstream hip hop. We had, uh, you know, mariachi. We had Mexican night. We had uh, salsa. Um, so we had, uh, you know, Spanish music and we taught lessons, um, dancing. So it was it was really, really cool. Really cool. In that case, then, being we are a 90s themed podcast here, I'd, I'd have to ask, do you have any particular favorite 90s musical artists? You know, my favorite artist of all time, it, it, it dates back to the 80s. Um, 80s were a big influence for me. For me, it, it probably was the best artist of all time. And when you look back in the 80s, you go, 
you know, for me, the best female artist of all time is Whitney Houston. So she trickled into the 90s when you hit the bodyguard and you hit those, those albums, Michael Jackson, Prince. Um, but the 90s for me were defined by R&B. It is the best R&B groups and individuals um, for me of that genre of music in the 90s. So, you know, you think of people like, you know, 112, um, Shy, um, Boys to Men, uh, just groups like that. They don't make R&B groups anymore. Um, and I really miss it. Um, so for me, the 90s was defined by, even though my favorite artists of all time were in the 80s, that special kind of R&B hip hop mix. Um, and that's what I remember the 90s with, um, was the R&B and hip hop. Um, really, really great artists and, and great mix. I couldn't agree more, and maybe I'll have to dedicate another another episode to you when we just talk music. But uh, I'll get back on to, to the topic at hand, which, of course, is basketball. And you're mentioning – actually, I did want to ask, um, before we get into your coaching career here, the um, the Utah Stars moved to San Antonio in 2003, I think it was, after six seasons. And, and there hasn't been a WNBA team in that market since. Do you think there is, is a future for the WNBA in Salt Lake City? You know, it was a really hard market. I also, in the off season, I did um, all the appearances for the, for the stars. I, it was kind of community service. So I stayed there year round. And then I worked for the jazz. I did uh, post game uh, uh, visitors locker room. So I'd go in and, and do a little uh, interviews with the uh, visiting NBA teams. But the market was so difficult, number one, because of summers, everyone's outdoors there. They're, they're in the mountains, they're on the lakes. They're, it's really hard to get people indoors. It's not like a city that, you know, D.C. or New York that you don't mind going indoors. Um, people love their outdoors there. And number two, the culture. The, um, the Mormon culture there, the role of the women in society in general in Utah was, you know, subservient. They, they weren't you know, the career holders, they, the men were in their families. And so I think that played a little role as well as to how many fans we were getting. Um, it was, so you combine those two um, and it just was very difficult to have a franchise there um, for whatever, for the, I think for those reasons. Um, and at the time, everything was the jazz. I mean, they, they were so good. The team was so good that every, everyone went in the jazz and then in the summer they needed their break. Um, and, uh, they went outdoors. So I don't know if, if that's the right market for a WNBA team. I really don't. Well, your post playing career, you started coaching there with the stars for a couple years and you actually were still part of the coaching staff when they moved to San Antonio. I was for one year. Candy Harvey uh, was the then head coach. Um, and then I went down uh, for that one year, but uh, she had gotten let go halfway through. Um, and um, so they replaced the coaching staff. You mentioned earlier when you had gone back to coach at Virginia, that it really wasn't something that kind of vibed with you at that point in time. What was different now this, you know, at this point in time, several years later that made you want to get into coaching? Well, I was older. Um, I got to experience some things. Um, 
And I, you know, like I said, I was, I was very adventurous when I was young. I wanted to do as many things as I could while I was young, because as you get older, you start to get in your thirties and forties, you need a little bit more stability um, and get a career and, and you got to think about those things. And when you're young, I, I wanted to try some other things. And so, you know, I had just landed three national commercials in New York. I mean, right in a row, boom, boom, boom. Um, I had done fitness modeling for Polar Tech, I Bally's, I was starting to get print work um, and things were going great. And then that offer came. And I, again, I, I think I wanted to please my, my parents. I wanted to please my father because he was so devastated when I didn't go overseas to play. Um, and then I was leaving basketball. And I, I, I thought, okay, I, I did this. I'll go coach. Um, and then it just, it wasn't, it didn't fulfill me. Um, and it was actually very, it just was like I was in this little bubble again of um, this basketball world. And it, it was defining me again. And I just, it just wasn't for me at that time because of my age. And there was other things I wanted to, to experience. Um, other worlds, completely different than basketball. And so now when I was older, I had already lived on both coasts. I had acted, I'd done movies. I don't, you know, I had done some things, owned businesses, um, and I was kind of grown and I missed the game and the game called to me again. And um, once I tried it, I, again, I, I had missed it. So it was really nice to step into also a different field. The WNBA coaching is completely different than college. Um, you're dealing with grown women that, you know, you're, you're not so much molding them and mentoring them anymore. They've had that in college. Now it's more X and O's, defining skill development, working with them every day as a professional, different level, um, and much easier than college, much, much easier. So your first experience going back to college in coaching then was with San Diego State? Yes, that was in 2010 and 11. I had been out of coaching for a while. After I left the WNBA, I went back to Utah. I had my business. I opened another business with that. And I also was a, the head PT director at, at Bally's Total Fitness. So I was running fitness departments. I'm a certified trainer. I'm running two businesses. And so I had a lot on my plate at the time. I was training young kids as well, football, basketball. Um, and I was pretty satisfied. Then I started getting the itch again. I went to a game um, at uh, University of Utah. My friend Tanya Cardoza from Virginia was coaching. Temple was playing TCU. And I got the itch again. And I said, I miss this. Um, and so I reached out to Beth Burns at San Diego State, who had an assistant opening that spring, and went down and interviewed, did a couple workouts with her, and um, actually land the job. And again, packed my car up made that move and moved to uh, beautiful San Diego. And from there you went to Fullerton? Yes. From there, Beth lost her job. So I had to find a job and it was really late in the season. And Cal State Fullerton was right up the road. They had an opening. Um, I knew the head coach. And so I went there for two years, um, always wishing and hoping that something on the East Coast would, would open because I really missed my family at that time. And I missed the East Coast. And thank God Syracuse had opened. 
Um, and I couldn't wait to come home to New York. So Syracuse, that was obviously something really special for you. And um, you've worked with a lot of tremendous players there. And that team had some very successful runs too in your time there. It also, of course, created the opportunity for you to take the job now that you have with Rhode Island. When you did that, or when you accepted the position of Rhode Island, was it difficult to say goodbye to Syracuse? Oh, God, yes. Um, I had that first year I came, we went to the Final Four and we played, you know, UConn in the championship game. And it was such a special team, special time. Everything about the Cukes, um, the coaching staff, the players, the neighborhood I lived in, how, the proximity to my parents, it was perfection. And I'm so thankful to Coach Hillsman and Coach Reed and um, for teaching me so much in my four years there um, and really preparing me to be a head coach. Uh, and so to say goodbye to some of my best friends, um, to say goodbye to that program, it was really difficult for me. Um, but I'm a, I'm a creature – you know, as I got older, I started to get, I was a creature of habit. I got very comfortable at places. Not like I was when I was young. I was, I'd pack up in a heartbeat and just drive somewhere and not even have a place to live. As I got older, I became more um, kind of, you know, less adventurous and, and really systematic. And so for me to take the job and jump off the cliff, it was like, oh my God. It, it was tough. And I really second guessed myself the first couple of weeks, month when I was down here, like, what did I do? Um, because it was an overhaul here and it, it, it was going to be a difficult job um, to kind of get this program up and running again. And so for me, I'll always, Cuse holds a special place in my heart. I will always be grateful to Quentin Hillsman for bringing me back home. It sounds like you had a really tremendous year there with the Rams and you were very successful on the court, but the team had a large uptick in attendance. Um, obviously, you know, you've been able to generate some excitement around the program and you were mentioning that earlier. Is that just kind of the, the byproduct of everything or was that something that you were focused on with, with something that you specifically targeted as an objective of yours when you took that job on? Well, I had, I had three you know, main objectives um, or goals coming into this program. Number one is, is obviously to turn the culture around um, and not just on the court. So first objective is get this team better. Um, even though we have actually less talent than the year before, they, they transferred out and graduated some kids and, and, you know, they were very thin um, and so that was my first objective is make them a competitive team. Number two was we've got to get them competitive and improve the academic performance of these young women in the classroom. And then number three was change the culture and the perception in the community where we start to really make an objective of uh, the community feels a part of this team, whether we win or lose. We're doing so much in the community and connecting with so many people that they will come and support us no matter what. And so those were the three kind of objectives I had going into my first year. Um, and we succeeded in all three. 
Um, and I, I, it was a testament to the kids. You know, obviously we had a great game plan and my, my assistant coaches were phenomenal, but the kids bought in to the, to the changes. They bought into the vision and the culture. If it weren't for that, we wouldn't be successful. And so, you know, that, that increase in attendance, the, the improvement, we went from, I think we got the highest GPA in the history of the program with a 3.5. In all the years the program has been around, and that's what, almost 40 years? Um, it was the highest GPA of all time. And so you look at those things, um, I credit to our coaching staff holding these kids accountable to being the best they could possibly be. And so at the end of the year, when, when we sat down and we said, did we fulfill our three objectives? I think we did. And I, I couldn't be any more satisfied and I couldn't be any more proud and happy for the kids that were part of that team. How does that inform your approach for this year? Now this year is a little bit different because we had a lot of talent that transferred in you know, from Syracuse, we have a kid, Missouri, Virginia. Um, we're bringing three Europeans over. We have a lot of talent, um, skilled talent, very good. So my objectives now, uh, my goals are a lot higher than they were last year. Now we're talking about, you know, having a shot at winning the A-10, having a winning record, going to the NCAAs. Our, our GPA now has to be over a 3.0. You know, we, we have standards now, whereas last year they were more conceptual concepts. Now we're actually going to goal set because our skill level has increased tremendously. Um, we're bringing in nine very good players. So I'm not going to dummy down and I'm not going to say, okay, we're going to, you know, we hope, no, our goals now are completely different. And so that year of rebuilding and installing our culture in our system now we can really take off with this class and this team. Definitely, I'm sure something that you're, you're very excited to get back on the court there in just a few days. The one last uh, thing I wanted to talk to you about, of course, is, and, and you've mentioned throughout, is your acting career. Because I think that's really, really cool, something that you've done on the side. So I wanted to, I wanted to kind of devote a particular time to discussing that. Now, so your initial uh, foray into this, I guess, was doing commercials? Yes. Um, back in when I graduated, I moved into New York City in, right upon graduation, um, and I, I enrolled in two drama schools, Lee Strasberg and Herbert Burkhoff. Strasberg was more for television and commercial work, and Herbert Burkhoff was more stage work. Um, and, and I got an agent. It was an ex-New York Jet. His name was Greg Buttle. And I went door to door with headshots and my resume. And I must have went, I sent out about 300 of them and went door to door and I got six responses. And so I, I signed with Greg, Greg's agency because he understood, he was a former athlete and he understood kind of my market and where I was at my career. And right out of my first week I signed with him, I had an audition for Arthur Anderson, a national commercial, and I got it. It was me and four Globetrotters, and the commercial ran for 10 years. It was one of the most amazing experiences. And again, it paid for itself. God, for 10 years, I collected residual checks. And right when I landed that, 
my dad changed his tune a little bit from, do you know you're, you're going to ruin your life? You're giving up basketball. You know how hard it is to become an actress and make it. And when I landed my first commercial and he saw that first chat, he changed his tune real quick. <laughs> what are some of the other uh, well-known commercials you had roles in? Um, I landed a Hardee's commercial. Um, I did a Bally's Total Fitness commercial. Um, and then I started doing print work. Um, Polar Tech, um, it, it, it's a clothing company. I did Nike catalogs. I did uh, Athleta. Um, when Athleta came out, it's a women's catalog. And then um, I, I started doing fitness competitions as, as well um, early, right, right out of college. I uh, actually won the uh, East Coast uh, Miss Fitness pageant in 1992. Wow. Yes. So right after graduation, or were you still in school at the time? No, it was right after graduation. It might have been 93. It was in, um, um, actually, it was on the border of Canada. Niagara Falls is where it was. Uh, the Night of Champions men's um, bodybuilding show, we were the warm-up show. And uh, it was on ESPN. And I won it. Um, it was my first competition. I actually won. And then that next week, I got to pose with all the, uh, all the, um, the bodybuilding champions. Um, and we did a, a muscle and fitness cover. We did the inside cover. And so I actually did, started doing a lot of fitness stuff. And it was, it was amazing. Jamal Jeffries was living a dream. I got to rethink cloning. Until it turned into a nightmare. Nobody wants you, not even the Clippers. And if he wants to play ball again, he's got only one option, to play as a woman. Joanna Man. Joanna Man. Joanna Man. Joanna Man. Yes, Joanna Man. Now, some of your acting credits, looking up on Internet Movie Database, you did Touch by an Angel. Of course, you mentioned you had a role in, in Juana Man. And then the one that caught my eye as a kid who grew up in the 90s and loved sitcoms, I saw you were on Sister, Sister, and I thought, okay, wow. Now I'm really impressed. So all, all these different roles, which one was your favorite? Uh, Juana Man by far. Um, being on a movie set, there's nothing like it. Um, and, and actually being a main player. So I was in almost every scene, you know, and you shoot for three months. We shot in Charlotte on location for three months. I was living in the hotel and I got to be, become pretty close with Vivica Fox, Tommy Davidson, Kim Wayans, um, who I ended up being, becoming close with her younger brothers, Marlon and uh, Sean. And then, you know, it just, it, it was a dream fulfilled. You know, how many, and there's a lot of kids, actually, a lot of basketball players, young girls right now that I talk to, they don't even remember I played basketball. All they know is I was in Juana Man. Like, and they're like, that's so cool. I want to act. I want to. And I tell them, basketball's a way that will open up so many doors for you. The people you meet, the agents, um, it, it just, it will. If you become a very good basketball player, you will have so many opportunities. Um, that will come your way. Um, and I tell them, experience them all. Because um, you never know what avenue will make you successful. And so that acting career was all brought on, again, because I play basketball. 
because I had something on my resume that other people didn't have um, and got me in the door, my initial audition. So it was, it was pretty cool. Uh, but Joanna Man by far was my favorite. Uh, the other one I wanted to ask you about is Double Team because that movie was actually based on the life of your teammates. <laughs> it was. Um, it was based on Heidi and Heather, the two identical twins I told you about. Disney was shooting. They actually, um, Disney shoots a lot of movies in Utah. I actually was in the Disney one as a volleyball coach, but um, I actually did a Showtime movie where I was the technical director. I trained all the athletes, um, all the women and, and the men that were in the movie. And then I, I did a couple other movies that I actually trained people. Um, it was the technical advisor where you, you draw up and diagram all the scenes, everything. So I got a lot of work in Utah, actually. And then all the after parties, rap parties, I brought them to my club and we did the rap party at my, at my nightclub. <laughs> it sounds like you had, it, you had that market cornered. It, it, it really did. I tried to mix all my businesses. I was like, how can I, how can I capitalize on, you know, I'm working on these movie sets and I say, hey guys, where's your rap party? And they'd be like, we don't know yet. I'd be like, I own a nightclub. We just cater it in and you come on down and we have the rap party there. So it, uh, it all worked out in the end. That's awesome. You played a volleyball coach. You didn't get to play yourself in that movie. Was the volleyball coach actually based on a real person? Actually, yes. Um, they, they played volleyball in high school um, as well. And so they actually had a volleyball coach um, as well. They played dual sports and before they really geared towards basketball. You mentioned that there are people now who remember you even more from the movies and basketball. Your current players that you coach, what is their awareness of your, like, are they constantly coming to you saying or checking out your old commercial clips or movies on YouTube? Or, or do they just know you more as coach before they know you as someone who is in the movies? They actually knew me first when, you know, they're, they're, they were on the team or their first sign they all knew I, I was in the movies. Um, very rarely, you know, I'm an older player. They, in, in college, we didn't have the, the television packages that, that they have now. And, and so it's hard to watch a lot of film on older players. You've had such a fascinating journey here. I figure they should probably make a movie about your life. When they do that, who plays you? <laughs> um. You know, it, it'd be kind of difficult. I don't know how many actresses can actually hoop. Um, you know, Sinai Latham in Love and Basketball was a kind of a phenom. She, could, she looked athletic. She could actually play it. You know, I'm looking at writing a manuscript um, kind of about a, a, a young female player and, and what she goes through and falling in love with a co her own coach and doing some different things, but I, I've always had this, this storyline in my head that I'm going to write this. It kind of like Sylvester Stallone did with Rocky, and then you pitch it, and you're like, I'm going to play me, and I'm going to, you know, help cast it and direct it. Now I'm too old. So back then, when I was writing my script, I was going to play the girl, and I actually was going to have Tom Cruise play the coach um, at the time. So now I'll, I'll have to think about it, but um, from, a, from an actress standpoint, I, I really haven't seen um, any young actresses that I think could actually play enough. Um, 
So I'd have to kind of look at actually young players. I'd cast the opposite way. I'd go with a basketball player who I think could study acting enough that could be pretty good. Um, and I cast it with an actual player. Okay, that's an interesting approach. Well, yourself then, would you consider yourself a basketball player first and then an actress? I think basketball player first um, because it, it was my life for so many years. It was my first love. It was my passion. Acting was more of a hobby um, where I, I found it late and I loved it. So I always tell people when I'm done coaching, when I'm through, I'm going to Betty White it and I'm going to go back to acting and I'll be a character actress. I'll be that, that commercial actress or that special older lady who, who just, you know, gets those quirky roles and, but I'll definitely Betty White it. I'm definitely going to go back to acting. That's awesome. And we, I think we can all aspire to live Betty White's life, no matter what. Tammy, thank you for your time. We'll probably have to do this again sometime and, and, and just talk about uh, 90s R&D and your memories of the Manhattan Club. I'm sure that's going to be a very interesting all in itself. But, but thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Best of luck once you get on the court there in a few days with your team again. Well, thank you, Brian. And I would love to uh, catch up with you after the season and we can recap. And I have some stories. Like, I have stories that you would not believe um, at, at the nightclub. It, it's like you things that, that happened or went on and, and it's, you know, you just go, oh my God, I can't believe it. But all those artists, you hear those crazy stories about 50 and, and Snoop and all them, they are all true. All right. Well, I will hold you to that. We'll catch up after the season and that, that'll give you at least enough time to decide which stories you can tell and which ones you can't. <laughs> all right, Brian, thank you so much for having me. And, uh, here's to a, uh, a normalcy of a year. Here's to that. Thanks, Tammy, for joining me, and thanks to everybody for tuning in. A reminder, you can find all episodes on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and online at tsn1260.ca. That'll do it. We'll catch you next time for another trip in time on the Dining Basketball Show. Mm-hmm.